Hello, hello, welcome and welcome back to Blazers for Goalposts. I'm joined as ever by my co-host or nemesis for today, depending on how you look at it. That is Joe, of course. And our old and good friend Yoni is on the call too. I'm also beyond looking forward to speaking with today's guest, who Joe will be introducing soon. I'll say that as an Arsenal fan, besides our North London Derby episode, I've made an effort not to overwhelm the show with Arsenal content or my Arsenal opinions. Today, however, unlike the receding hairline of a certain Arsenal centre-half named Rob, I will not be holding back, so to speak. Anyway, I'm so happy that now the time has come to chat Arsenal, and it's today's guest in particular who we'll be having that conversation with. Moving on from one of my worst ever puns to one of my good friends, Yoni, my fellow gooner, welcome back to the podcast. How have you been since the last time we had you on when we were chatting with the enemy, Windy Coys? Yeah, thanks again for having me. Uh, delighted to be on today's show. Obviously had to have a kind of deep cleanse after that episode just to purify myself. Um, but no, joking aside, I've been fine. I've got a kind of problem where every time it rains, a group of snails congregate outside my window. So like, if anyone has any listeners or any of you have any tips on how to deal with that in like a non-lethal way, be very grateful. But apart from that, doing, doing excellent. Thanks. Yeah, my, my mom seems to have an issue with uh, birds who like to build a nest on her balcony, apparently. But have you named any of the snails out of curiosity? Oh, it's just like my prediction for what the 11 this weekend's going to be. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, some probably Ainsley's going to be one of them. And yeah. As many as 11. Brilliant. Um, otherwise, shout out to at Windy Coys, all jokes aside, lovely guy who runs a great account and makes some great podcasts, too. Speaking of Spurs fans, Joe, my co-host, is here. Willingly, I might add, despite the inevitable roasting that I fear may come his way. But Joe, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Kai. Um, and fresh from watching episodes four to six of um, the Amazon All or Nothing Tottenham Hotspur series. And whilst I cannot claim to be a reader or listener of today's guest, I am very aware of his importance amongst my friends and the wider group of people who made the misguided life choice of supporting Arsenal Football Club. So a big welcome to Andrew Mangan, better known as Arsblog. Andrew created Arsblog back in 2002 and it's fair to say things have gone pretty well with millions of readers reading his content every month, not to mention people listening to him on the Arscast too. Andrew, how are you today? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? I mean, I, I feel like you're putting yourself through some torture watching that documentary. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't say that just because it's a Spurs thing, but if they were to do one about Arsenal, I think I would just want to kill myself because it all <laughs> looks so fake and stage managed and, and awkward. Is it not massively? You know, the way Curb Your Enthusiasm is really, really awkward when you watch it. This looks like next level, like Larry David couldn't do this. <laughs> well, I mean, I was worried it was going to be like that. And it's certainly stage managed and quite fake. But it has been pretty entertaining. I can't say I've been converted to become a massive Mourinho fan after it. But, you know, there's been some entertaining moments. And I'll take the fact that I'm not completely embarrassed to be a Spurs fan afterwards. So that's a positive. But, um, <laughs> yeah, Andrew, how are you? You, you doing well? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Just getting ready for a new season. You know, the, the old one has just finished and here we go again. So 
uh, you just start cranking the machine and seeing where seeing where we end up. Uh, you know, like like every preseason, this one has been really weird, of course, because of everything that's gone on and the truncated nature of of this period we have but like ever since I was a kid at the start of a new season or just before it I'm filled with this sort of irrational optimism as as to what might happen and I thought you know as I got older that that wouldn't be the case it doesn't last as long as it used to but I still have it so I'm sort of sitting here realistically in my in my head I know like what's possible and not possible for Arsenal within, you know, certain limits. But my heart is kind of like, come on, we can win the league. <laughs> you know, we can do it. You know, you never know. You just turn some of those draws into wins and look, it, it'll be, uh, it'll be a, um, a crash back down to earth at some point fairly quickly, I think. But if you can't have that bit of optimism at the start of a new season, when can you? No, totally agreed. And yeah, as a Spurs fan as well, I'm you know, I'd, if you gave me the Carabao Cup now, I'd probably take it for next season. I'm just desperate to see Spurs win something. But, what um, do you mean probably? Of course you would. Like it's, oh, yeah. it's yeah, been no, yeah. 12 I'll, years. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take the, the finishes above Arsenal as well, as, as, you know. But that's so we'll, we'll get into that later. But for some non-football-related things, Andrew, I am aware that you have some German shepherds, which means actually everyone on today's podcast at some point in time has owned a dog. So really what I'm looking to hear from everyone is what is your favourite TV or movie dog? And I'm going to keep it simple with my choice being Scooby-Doo, who's a fantastic ambassador to the Great Dane breed, but not as legendary as Kai's old Great Dane Hercules, who I remember fondly from our younger years. Andrew, who would you go for as your favorite TV or movie dog? Oh my God. You're really putting me on the spot here. Because, um, I'm trying to think of any, uh, like Scooby-Doo is a good choice, obviously, but it's sort of offset by the fact that Scrappy-Doo was a little prick. So <laughs> um, I'm going to have to think about this and let somebody else answer because I, you know, I'm one of those people that when you put me on the spot with, with uh, regards to a movie or a TV show, I'm like, I've just gone blank here. So I'm going to have to Google while you're talking and I'll see if I can pick one that's uh, any use. Sure. So Yoni, have you got a favorite TV or movie dog to share with us? I mean, the first one that came to mind when you asked that question was Courage the Cowardly Dog. Like thinking about it, that's just like a fucking weird cartoon. You've got a dog who is scared of everything, protecting these two geriatric owners who have no idea that he is like actually doing a pretty good job protecting them from various like monsters and aliens. So yeah, and I think probably as a kid, I was quite a scared child myself. So I found something within the character of Courage that spoke to me somehow. <laughs> no, Courage was a, a real character. Um, but Kai, owner of course of Zeus, the wonderful dog you've got in LA. Who gets your vote? Yeah, Zeus is, he's sitting by me right now. I'm just rubbing his belly as, as we record. But um, uh, back in the sort of golden age of cartoons being created by Hanna-Barbera, there was a show called Wacky Races. And uh, mm. one of the teams had their own uh, spin-off show. And that was the unscrupulous duo of Dick Dastardly and Muttley. So Muttley, as you can gather from his name, is sort of like the scruffy looking mutt of a dog. And that reminds me of my little boy, Zeus. Actually, yesterday, I officially adopted him. I'd been fostering him up until now, so I'm quite chuffed at the minute to have Zeus. But um, I won't do the monthly impression. He was quite sort of memorable for this wheezy laugh that he did. But I do want to also shout out Droopy the dog, who's another dog that I thought of that I'm quite fond of, and I can do his impression. 
his catchphrase was something like, um, let's see. <clears throat> I'm so happy. I'm very, very happy. Uh, something like that. So now that I've embarrassed myself, maybe that's given Andrew enough time. That's not bad at all. That's not a bad impression, I have to say. Um, I, I was, uh, you know, because I've got German Shepherds, I like that kind of a dog. So I don't know if you've seen uh, John Wick 3, the one with Halle Berry in it. And she's got, they're not German Shepherds. I think they're Malinois. They're Belgian Shepherds. They're really impressive dogs who, you know, she sets upon the baddies. But I'm going to go with uh, the, the dog from Up. I think his name was Doug. Nice. Um, I really liked him. He was uh, he was funny, and uh, we we sort of uh, the two dogs, German Shepherds, are very intense, as uh, I'm sure you know. Um, and if you take them out to the woods or to the park, they they get very invested in squirrel. So if they see that's a catchphrase when we're walking, the dogs like squirrel, and they're like they're looking for dogs. So yeah, let's go with that one. He's good. So a couple of personal questions, Andrew, before we dive into some Arsenal-related mm. stuff. And I've been following Arsblog for a long time now, since I was a kid, really. And especially now that I'm living in LA, I'd say that your daily blogs, your weekly Arscasts, as well as the breaking news, has been probably the biggest and best bridge between me and the club for getting towards a decade now, since I was a season ticket holder back in London. Firstly, I guess, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, but otherwise, uh, a question about Arsblog. And... Of the characters that you've brought us through the blog, such as the Mug Smasher, and then the sort of personas that you've ascribed to individuals within the game, like the fondly named Tony Pubis, and also <laughs> Sam Allardyce as a fat walrus, do you have a favorite character or persona that you're particularly proud of or attached to? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think the fact that, like m many Arse blog readers, understand that Liverpool are the Mug Smashers. Uh, I quite enjoy that because it's it's so weird that like people uh, who don't read Arsblog would have no idea if you're to talk about the mug smashers on Arsblog they know you're talking about Liverpool so like have having that entire football club that city referred to like that I think is is a good one so that's sort of all for my brother I don't know I mean I, um, I think just trying to find the lighter side of football like you know maybe I took it a bit more seriously when I was younger. Now you kind of have to find the, the, the fun part of hating people. If you like, it's still good to hate people and to be wound up by them and, and everything else. But I think there's so much other crap going on in the world right now that we have to sort of put football in its own little box and, and try and step back from it. So I don't know. I mean, I think some of the characters that have, that have been on the, the podcast down the years have been good, like the penis of William Gallas and, um, you know, Nicholas Bentner repurposed as a, as an egotistical Dubliner called Mick Bentner. Stuff like that is always really fun, you know? Wanted to ask as well that when you write those parody characters or those uh, little moments in your blog for the day, do you ever find yourself trying to get inside the mind of an Allardyce or a Pulis or a Bentner? to sort of give it a bit more of an authentic personality uh, into the character and into the writing? Um, no, I mean, I'm reminded of that. Uh, what's that great story? Was it um, Dustin Hoffman when he was filming one of, uh, it could have been Marathon Man with Laurence Olivier, and he was doing the whole 
the whole method thing, you know, and he was really getting into it and he couldn't figure it out. And Laurence Olivier, I think it was this, turned around to him and just said, try acting, old boy. So, you know, this, this idea that you, you know, I don't need to get into the mind of Sam Allardyce. I think that's a dark place for any <laughs> football fan to be, to be perfectly honest, and willingly transmitting yourself or, or putting yourself in there. I, I don't know that it's, I don't know that that's healthy, to be honest. You might never come out the same. No, I don't blame you. Yeah, it's like a journey to the center of the earth, but yeah. worse. <laughs> Anyways, um, I guess just... Last question on this this topic. Mm. Um, who's next? Like, are there any detestable characters in the game with larger than life personalities or or features that you can prey upon this season? Perhaps I know you said you're trying to be nice about it or uh, to an extent, but mm. yeah, who's next? I don't know. I mean, look, it, the the stuff like that just sort of tends to happen a bit organically. Like somebody does something or somebody says something, and you can make a bit of a you can make a bit of a skit out of it, you know? So it's not about really looking and seeing who, who is the most evil. I mean, we know, of course, exactly who it is and he's manager of Tottenham. But, um, you know, it's waiting and seeing what somebody says during the week or what somebody does. And it could be a footballer, it could be a manager, it could be a media person, a pundit. You know, the, the, the list is endless uh, out there of people who provide you with the kind of good content that you can take the piss out of. So, you know, everyone starts with a blank slate going into this season. Um, and, you know, the worst ones will end up somewhere on the podcast or on the blog. Nice. Um, Andrew, you've clearly been on a massive journey with Ask Blog since it started off. And in that time that since you started, there's been obviously the blog. You obviously have a very strong social media presence. You do the podcast mm. and you've even um, published award-winning books too. So during that time, is there anything you're particularly proud of that you've achieved? And likewise, what is the worst part about running Ask Blog? Because I know having spoken to Wendy Coy, a Tottenham blogger, that being a sort of notable blogger, you know, not all of it is always positive. That's true. Um, the first part, I suppose, the first part is the, the 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 just the fact that it's still going like eighteen years later, and you know it's it's grown and grown organically, and the community has grown around it, and you know the fact that we're still doing stuff. You know, it used to be just me, and now there's a team of people. You know, we've got other writers and other contributors and co-hosts and things like that. So the fact that I've been able to grow the site with those people and their contributions have been so valuable, but, but sort of keeping the overall, um, what's the word? Like the, the, the tone of the site has remained more or less the same throughout the years. It has matured a little bit, of course. Um, you know, as have I down the years, I was 30 when I started it. So, you know, you, you, you're a different person at uh, 48 than you are at 30. So I, I just think that, you know, the fact that we're still doing what I think is really high quality work, you know, we don't do any of the nonsense or any of the clickbait or any of the, the really hicky stuff that, that a lot of websites do. We've never done that. And the fact that we've been able to grow and, and keep things going without having to resort to those kind of tactics, I think that's probably the thing I'm, I'm most proud about. The worst thing, you know, there isn't really a worse thing about writing and talking about your favorite football club for a living. Um, it would feel really churlish to say that, you know, there are bad aspects to the job. I mean, it's hard work. I work every day. I get up and I write a blog every single morning, you know, um, 
I was saying to somebody the other day, I think I'm coming up on a year now without a day off, you know, but that's part of what you do when you have something like this, you, you, you build it and you, you have a responsibility to your audience to keep it going. So it's hard work and, and everything else, but I wouldn't say that that's a, a bad thing in any way, you know, um, the social media presence, sometimes you get some people who aren't great, but for the most part, my experience of doing the blog and being online has been uh, really positive. It's like 99% positive. And I think if you were doing any job and 99% of it was positive and 1% of it wasn't, you'd feel pretty happy with yourself, regardless of what that job was. As you said, Andrew, 18 years is a considerable amount of time to be doing the things you do. Getting up every morning to write the blogs, record podcasts, do live blogs for the games, player ratings, all of those things. And at a time where a lot of the failings at Arsenal at both senior and team level have been very familiar and repetitive, how do you manage to keep the things that you say and the things that you write fresh? Um, and also, how do you manage to keep the routine of it fresh for you every season? Um how do you keep it fresh? I mean, look, by its very nature, football is fresh. You know, every game is a new thing. Every season is a new thing. There are transfers, there are uh, there's rebuilding, there's new managers, there's new players, you know, so there is this sort of recycling of, of everything anyway, by its very nature within football. And then I suppose what you do as well is you look at what's happening from a technological point of view and how do people want to consume what it is that you do and how do you give it to them? you know, um, because it started, it was just a website. And then we did a website and we did like an email, a mailing list, which still goes out. And then social media comes along. So you've got to get a Facebook page and Twitter and Instagram. And now we have a YouTube channel and there's not a great deal of stuff on YouTube, but we put our podcasts up there because some people just like to listen to podcasts on YouTube. We have apps for, for iOS and Android, you know, so you try and keep an eye on what's happening and, and how audiences are, are developing and, and everything else and, and try and tap into that or try and keep up with, with the way people consume content. And then just in terms of, you know, what I do and, and how we do things, you know, have new people on board, have new guests and just try and find new ways to talk about things. There was a time of course, when a lot of what was going on at Arsenal was quite samey. So it was difficult sometimes to say the same thing, but in a different way after a result which told you something you already knew. But, you know, here we are on the cusp of, uh, you know, I think something new with Mikel Arteta. And that's part of what, what, what makes it fresh is that like every year there's a new season and every, every game, every week, every tournament is different. And that's, that's the joy of football, I think. And, uh, you know, just being able to, to tap into that is, is part of what, what helps me do that. It's interesting how you were talking about how the game sort of naturally keeps itself fresh with each new season. And it got me thinking about the commercial side of things too, how that sort of contributes. For instance, I'm one of those suckers that buys the new copy of FIFA every year just because they've changed the kits or they've changed the, you know, there's a new transfer. And as I sit in my brand mm. new kit and whatnot, and it's like, so they got me, that's for sure. But <laughs> one way or another, there's something about the freshness. Yeah. It just shows how low my threshold is, I guess. Otherwise, I mean, that's football fans. You know, everyone wants the new kit. Like, you know, some of the biggest stories that we do on the website are not about games. They're not about transfers even. Like weird things that people are, are just madly fascinated by. New kit, pictures of new kit, and people go crazy for it. And shirt number stories. 
like if someone changes their shirt number or if you get a new signing and they don't tell you what shirt number he is and then you do like a shirt number story people are like Whoa! i don't really understand it but it's just part of it's part of what happens so um yeah you can't tell um what exactly it is that people are looking for sometimes until until it's right in front of you you know yeah, I mean, I guess rightfully so, the intrigue around the kit. I had no idea until it was laid out in front of me that what our away kit is based off of the marbling at Highbury, I suppose. That's the pattern, yeah, supposedly. So so but it's just like, I think everyone, when that came out, people wanted answers, that's for sure. So it kind of makes sense that, yeah, people would click on that article. Moving on to a little game, and it's time for a game that we like to call Hawaii Witch Lads. So I've selected a couple of matches from the past, and uh, today they're going to be Arsenal related. So the rest of you play along. If you're listening as well, you're going to be naming one of the starting 11s from that given match day. I've got clues if you need them, so feel free to ask a bunch of questions and prepare for a couple of throwbacks, because the first match took place on Wednesday, the 21st of December, 2005 when Arsenal played Doncaster Rovers in a Carling Cup match at the old Bellevue Stadium. And uh, Doncaster actually today just confirmed the loan signing of Tyrese John Jules from Arsenal. And I know this because the notifications for Arsblog News on my phone are on and it <laughs> popped up. Uh, right. It just um, ties it in nicely. Otherwise, uh, this dramatic encounter ended 2-2 after extra time with Arsenal equalizing in the 120th minute to take it to penalties where we would win 3-1. So from the three of you, I'm looking for Arsenal's starting eleven from that day, uh, feel free to ask as many questions as you'd like. Go for it. God. Would, um, I always tried to start the goalie. Would it have been Almunia? Was he like the sub goalie at the time? He was the penalty shootout hero, I guess. It was, uh-huh. yeah, Manuel Almunia in goal. Wow. Um, did Philippe Senderos start? Yeah, he was in something that made up a back four, although there's only one fullback in there. Was um, Johan Juru accompanying him at the back? Yeah, his fellow oh, Swiss. Yeah, you guys are off to a good start. Uh, admittedly, obviously, I tried to make it difficult because it's a Carling Cup game, so it is a strange side, but you're doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, let me think here. One fullback, would it have been Justin Hoyt? No, but I'll give you that it's a right. it would be a player I would associate as a right back. Although he played at right midfield sometimes for us, but Ibue. Yeah, you've got you said Ibue, right? Yeah. Yeah. So just one defender missing from the back four. You don't have to finish the defense at once, but you are just missing one defender. Clichy? No, but he's French. And he has a similar haircut to Clichy. Traore. No. Maybe that was a bit of a curveball. Mm. This defender, yeah, he went to play in Spain after he left Arsenal. He went to play at Spain in the same club that Perez went to play for. Seagan. Yeah, well in Joe. So Pascal wow. Seagan played in this in this back four. Um, I guess moving on to the midfield. Yeah, what do you guys think's going on? I'd call it a midfield three, maybe. So are they, is this is this getting to like the real like youth team players now? No, you know what? Actually, the midfield three is a good good three players. All all internationals. One of them's won a World Cup. Sask Fabregas. No, another Arsenal midfielder that won a World Cup. Gilberto. Yeah, he scored the 120th minute equaliser. Hleb. Was Hleb playing? Yeah, Hleb played. He actually missed a penalty in the shootout, but we won anyway. Who else would have been in midfield? 2005. 
Wow. This guy, he's played for two other Premier League teams. Initially, they were both loans. He might have signed for one of them permanently, but he was... Oh, Seb Larson. No. That was a bit of a trick, because he wasn't actually loaned to one of them from Arsenal. He was loaned to one of them from Barcelona. I guess much uh, like Lev, who was loaned to Birmingham from Barcelona. Alex Song. Yeah, you got it. That was the West Ham loan from Barcelona. So Alex Song was the other midfielder. And then the, there's like a front three, I guess, or three attacking players. Um, one of them's quality, the other two... Van Persie? Yeah, that's the good one. And then we've got a player who was highly rated at Arsenal, but really didn't have much of a career. And then another highly rated youngster who showed glimpses for Arsenal and then actually did okay for the national team that he played for, but likewise not a success. Quincy? Give... Yeah. <laughs> I want... <laughs> did you... If you got that off of what I just said, that's quite impressive. <laughs> but yeah, it was Quincy, yeah. Quincy, Owusu Um Right. And then, so yeah, one more striker. And this guy... Eliadier. No, not even anywhere near as good as Eliadier, I'd say. He had a loan at Derby when he was playing for Arsenal. I can remember Arturo that. Arturo Lupoli. Yeah. You're good with these, with these clues. But that, you, you, you've cracked it, guys. That was the 11. And um, okay. I do just want to also read off the bench because it's fantastic. On the bench is uh, Kerry Gilbert, uh, Seb Larson, Nick Bentner, Fabrice Mwamba, and Mark Poom. Uh, so what a team that we brought to Doncaster that day. And I do have one more game for you guys. And likewise, throwing it back to 2006 this time, a year later, uh, on the 19th of August. And if that date sounds familiar, it's because it was the inaugural Premier League game at the Emirates Stadium. Not ones to disappoint on that special occasion. We drew 1-1 with Aston Villa. Mm. Um, to make things a bit more difficult for you guys, I want the villains lineup from oh. that memorable day. I can tell you there's literally Olaf Melberg, and that's about as much as I've got. Yeah, my, my, I had a note next to him for clues, and I put brilliant beard. But All yeah, right. um, Melberg, it was in there. And um, I think these other guys are going to struggle too. This is going to be a clue-heavy round, potentially. Is the goalie Thomas Sorensen? Yeah, it is Thomas Sorensen. I think we another mention for Sorensen on the podcast. Agbon Lahore? Yeah, Gavi Agbon Lahore uh, was up front. Gareth Barry in the middle. Yeah, played more games than anyone else in the Premier League. Gareth Barry. Ashley Young? No, I don't know if he was... Uh, who knows? I, I would have thought he would have been around the club maybe around then, but I guess not. I think he was uh, at Watford. That was the season yeah, he was in the Premier League with Watford. Right. Was Wilfred Baumer in the team? <laughs> no, but thank you for saying that name. Um, God, this is quite tricky. Okay, so, uh, uh, Lawson, did we say? No, he wasn't playing. I'd say, uh, so the centre-back, him and the centre-midfielder, both are from the same country, and they both signed for Fulham from Aston Villa. Oh, the big... No, I'm thinking of somebody else. One of them's played for Southampton quite recently. Quite recently? Yeah, and he played for Rangers before that. Oh, Stephen Davis. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, like I said, the centre-back is from the same country. Oh, is it... Chris Baird? No. Although this guy did play for Fulham as, as well, like you were saying, yeah, and Villa. Um, oh, Aaron Hughes. Aaron yeah. Hughes. <laughs> yeah, well done. Well done. Well done. That's a good get. Then we've got two more midfielders and two more forwards and a, oh, a couple of the defenders still. So the fullbacks. One of them went on to play for Birmingham and West Brom, and then he played in the MLS, actually. Um, Liam Yeah, yeah, Liam Ridgewell. The other one played for Bolton. And that's the first clue I'll give you. Has he passed away? I was going to say that would have been the other clue that I 
would have given you. Yeah, J. Lloyd Samuel, rest in peace, played in that game. Um, then two midfielders, yeah, and two forwards. Oh, sorry, one midfielder and two forwards. As one, one of mid- the forwards, one Pablo Angel. Yeah, I didn't know he was still at Villa, but Juan Pablo Angel, yeah, well done. So a striker and a midfielder to go. Uh, the midfielder played for Bolton as well, and he had funny hair. Oh, Gavin like McCann. Funny, yeah, I was going to say, like not like Ivan Campo hair, almost the opposite. Yeah, what was up with that? It was like half of it was there and just the other half yeah, naturally it was, wasn't. It was the most noteworthy thing about Gavin McCann's career, potentially. <laughs> um, otherwise, one striker, I'd say very hyped, but never produced. And so I guess he was a Villa, might have been a Villa Academy player, oh. potentially. Luke Moore. Yeah, well done. You guys rounded it off. Quite impressed. Well, it fills me with immense pain and regret to kick off this next section, which is all about one of the things in life I despise the most. Arsenal. I suppose I've already subjected Kai and Yoni to an episode full of Spurs chat with Windy Coys, um, but it doesn't make this part any easier. So, Andrew, mm. as the new season approaches, probably for the first time in a while, there is some hope emerging from the Emirates that Arsenal might be onto something. And now, obviously, since Arteta has been appointed, I feel like the fans have got behind the team a lot more. You've already managed to bag some silverware, which was incredibly frustrating to see. And also, not only does it look like you're going to keep people like Aubameyang, you've made a few really, well, seemingly smart signings too. So it all feels worryingly positive. What I'm interested in is what would have to happen this season at Arsenal for you to consider it a success? Uh... That's a really good question because I think, you know, the FA Cup success was uh, obviously very enjoyable uh, for us, but not for you. Um, but it did, it did sort of, in some ways, paper over the cracks of last season, which was really, really bad. It was, you know, the worst Arsenal have uh, performed in over 25 years. We nearly didn't get into Europe. You know, we finished eighth on the final day of the season. So, I don't think anybody should be under any illusions that there is a, a, an easy job to do at Arsenal. There's a lot of work to do. Some of the signings I think have been smart, might be the right way of putting it. I mean, I think Willian could be okay for a year, you know, plenty of experience. The two young central defenders are players for the future. So there's a bit of future proofing going on there in terms of, in terms of what's going on. But, you know, a lot of the same players are still there. A lot of the same guys that, that were part of a team that, that finished eighth are still there. So I think if you're looking to see what, what does success look like for Arsenal, it's building, it's making progress, it's achieving more Premier League points, it's sorting out some of the issues that we have, you know, in terms of creativity, defensively. I don't think this is a quick fix thing for Arsenal. I don't think it's a a case that we're just going to go and finish in the top four next season and then just kick on from there. So I think realistically, if Arsenal can finish, you know, uh, higher, fifth maybe, with more points, with 
things that we can build on for the season ahead of that, I, I think that's not unreasonable. And maybe it's not quite what people want, and maybe it's not what people want to hear, but I do feel like things have gotten so bad that, you know, you're, it's historically bad. So you, you don't just bounce back from that, you know? And I think Arted is a smart guy and he talks well and he communicates well and he, he clearly has some kind of vision as to what he wants, but making it happen in a weird COVID impacted transfer period with little or no money at his disposal uh, beyond what we can sell to, to spend again, you know, it doesn't seem realistic that he's going to solve everything. So I, I think if we're, you know, we make steady progress, win more games, get more points, finish closer to the top four, and then build on that. It's not the most exciting, but I, I do feel like that would probably be or should be considered successful with or without a trophy. Now that makes sense. I mean, I, I thought your answer was going to be be able to celebrate St. Tottering, Totting, Totteringham's Day. Well, you can't even bring yourself to say yeah, it. I know, yeah, I'm, I'm stumbling on it. I know, fortunately, that hasn't been celebrated in a few years. Um, I mean, no you, trophy for that, though, so don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> oh, there we go. But the, the thing that was very frustrating for me last year is obviously, as you said, it was a, one of Arsenal's worst years in recent memories. But, well, we finished above you, but that was all as a Tottenham fan I had to shout about last mm. year. I couldn't even really enjoy the demise of Arsenal. So, yeah, hopefully you're correct and they don't get top four, but we'll see. I'm, I am, from a Spurs fan's perspective, a little bit worried, but equally reassured by, by what you have said about exercising a little bit of caution. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's reasonable to be cautious. Like, everybody is looking at this young French central defender we have, William Saliba, and clearly he's a a young guy who's got plenty of potential and physically he looks the part in the Premier League and, you know, he's got the right kind of profile, doesn't he, in terms of his size, his, his physicality, his speed, he's technically good, all of those things. But he's 19. Like how many 19-year-old central defenders come to the Premier League and tear it up from the start? So I think as much as there's expectation, there has to be realism and understand that, like, 19-year-old, 20-year-old players, particularly defenders, have got a lot of learning to do. So my, you know, I hope that there is that awareness and that, that, that bit of understanding for, you know, for players like that who still have um, a lot to learn, um, but who can hopefully in time become really important parts of the, the Arsenal team. Yeah, Saliba is an interesting one because it's not that often that it happens, at least at Arsenal, that a player is bought and then loans out immediately. I think that's helped to like build the anticipation about his arrival, especially because the defense has continued to be a mess for the last year. Um, like it shored up a little bit towards the end of the season there. But mm. the, yeah, the fact that he is almost being greeted as a potentially like messianic signing for the defense is not really good for anyone. As nice it is to like indulge that fantasy, maybe. Yeah, it's and the, look, Ar sorry. I mean, Arsenal have spent like. 30 million on Gabriel from Lille, 28 million on Saliba last year. They spent somewhere in the region of 15 million on Pablo Marie from Flamengo in January. So they've like thrown a fair bit of money at the defense. So there is a need to, to see that investment um, pay off. You know, you don't throw that amount of money around and just, you know, um, write it off. But at the same time, I think we have to be realistic about, you know, it might take them some time just to get used to the league and the Premier League and to their teammates, new club, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, you know, just a common sense. Yanni, you had me a bit worried um, talking about being loaned after signed because that reminds me of Joel Campbell, who I think what it was like <laughs> Lorient, Olympiacos, and everyone was like, this guy's got something about him. And then he, you know, what happened happened. But hope I think Saliba's got a much higher ceiling. I think hopefully we can group him closer to someone like a Rafael Varane eventually. But we'll see. That'd be nice if he was right. that good. <laughs> You'd take it. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things you mentioned there, Andrew, was about Arteta's communication. And that's definitely one of the reasons that I've been very encouraged since he came in is his ability to clearly and articulately put across a plan and his ideas about the club. I mean, we were like blessed for many years with Arsene Wenger being this great orator and less so with the next guy. Um, so it's nice to have someone who can communicate that again. But like, what is it specifically about what he says or how he says that that speaks to you as a fan and encourages you? I think it's the clarity of his messaging, you know, which um, was muddled, I think, under Unai Emery. And that's not really his fault completely, is it? You know, when you come to a new country, you have to learn a new language. You're always going to struggle with communication. Like put any one of you or any one of us in a, in a country we don't know the language and you're doing two press conferences a week and you're doing live television and you're trying to, you know, you're going to struggle. Um, but I think with Arteta, there's a, there's a clear message, not only um, because of his fluency in English and the amount of time he's been in England and all that kind of thing, but I think it seems clear to me anyway, he knows what he wants. He knows what he wants Arsenal to be. He knows that Arsenal are not where, you know, as a club with, with ambition, we should be. Things have declined and they need to turn around. So he's not blind to those things. He's not blind to the fact there's a lot of work to do. But I also think, you know, some of the messaging when he talks about what needs to happen with the squad, he doesn't really pull any punches. You know, he says pretty much from the start, he came in and said, we have got to improve. And he said, the first part of that is me making the players better through coaching, but we need to invest. We need, you know, he's not saying, give me 200 million pounds. I need, you know, but he is saying that there's only so much you can do with some of these players, which is completely reasonable when you look at, um, some of the, the, the performers that we have in this team. Um, you know, you could make them better, but, but um, you can't make a donkey win the Grand National, can you? You know, so uh, if you want to do that, you've got to get yourself a better horse. And I think that's, that's been clear. And I, I've, I've been encouraged by that. I've been encouraged by just how precise he is about what he wants. And I think when, when it comes to recruitment, he knows what he wants um, in, in particular positions. So I'm, I'm very curious to see how much of it plays out during this transfer period. Yeah, I think probably you, me and Yanni are all much more happy with the Arteta situation, but at least we'll always have good evening, kind of the, the legend of that from Emery. Back to the playing squad and onto the defense again. I felt like, and I think a lot of people have probably felt that the back five has been largely out of necessity, um, sort of personnel and the quality of the personnel that we have. And I would fully expect Arteta to move to a back four, or I think that would be his long-term preference, which I reckon could turn us from a pretty good counter-attacking team, to be fair, that we have been, into something more like the old Arsenal, playing with a bit more position, playing a bit higher up the pitch. We haven't really seen Arteta play with a back four. There's been these couple of behind-closed-door friendlies recently where who knows what's going on. But basically, Andrew, do you think that a back four is on its way? And if so, what effects could you see that having on the team? Um, I mean, he did play with a back four until uh, when he came in first. 
but he has, I think, you know, he recognized the fact that in, in the, the collection of defenders he had, a back three was the safest way to deploy, you know, a central defense. David Luiz doesn't work really well in a back, you know, in a back four and as a central defensive too. So I, I think I agree. You know, long term, I think he wants to be a team that plays a back four. I think we will see it at times this season because, you know, whatever about sticking your back three out, your back five with wing backs, if you want to call it that, three, four, three, however you want to frame that particular formation, whether it's negative or positive, you know, it works when you're playing Liverpool and when you're playing Man City and when you're playing Chelsea and, and Man United. And, you know, we won some big games with that back three. The, the issue is when you go and you play a Villa, or a Brighton, or a team that you are supposed to beat. And I say supposed, you know, you can't take anything for granted. But, you know, as a club like Arsenal, you're expected to do more in the game. You're expected to, to control the game maybe a bit more and to be on top and to dominate possession. You know, can you, can you realistically go there with a back three and expect to do that? So that's why I think in some games we might see a back four it all really depends on on the players and how well these two new guys settle in. Because I think speaking now, without really having seen either of them play for us, you would look at Saliba and Gabriel as potentially the 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 duo for the future. But again, it's how quickly they can they can develop and how how quickly they can slot in. Um, so. I think we will at times see a back four this season because I feel like we need to get that extra man further up the pitch. I also think that some of that depends on midfield recruitment and who we bring into midfield. And if we bring in a, a creative presence in midfield, then something's got to give further back because you've got to make room for that player. So it'll be very, very interesting to see what happens in the market. And, you know, a midfield purchase could tell us what he's going to do with the defense. I think you're completely right about signings and in, ins and outs are going to dictate sort of the, the formation that we're most suited to play. I was going to say on that note, do you think that we might be shooting ourselves in the foot when you hear talk of Torreira going and potentially Bellerin? If you're going to play a flat back four, I reckon Bellerin would be your first choice right back ahead of Maitland-Niles, for instance, who's probably more of a wing back. And then Torreira, whether or not he's the guy, if you're going to play that back four, you're going to need someone to protect it. And um, I don't know if we have, I guess, Party. They're talking about Thomas Party potentially coming in. But mm. that's sort of that position, that Vieira, that Gilberto Silva that we've never really, still to this day, filled. Is that something that you think, with all the Party talk, is a big priority? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I just think it's about um, technical security in midfield as much as anything. I mean, I think if we're sitting here and we're hankering for a Vieira, we're going to be disappointed time and time again, because that's a, that's a once in a lifetime player. You know, the idea of why can't we get a new Vieira? Well, you know, if there were new Vieiras hanging from the trees, you know, you'd, you'd just pluck one off and away you go. And every team would do that. You just, it doesn't happen. They don't grow on trees. So um, I think we have to look at what the modern game tells us about how you construct a midfield too. And I think one of the issues from, from uh, Arsenal's perspective is the lack of technical security, the lack of retention, um, you know, in tight spaces, players who can do that. Um, Danny Ceballos is able to do it a bit, um, obviously, and he did well towards the end of last season. So him coming back, I think, is a positive move. 
but there are questions over a lot of the midfielders like Torreira could go back to Italy we don't know what's happening with Genduzzi yet we don't know what's happening with Mesut Ozil really we don't know what's happening with um, did I say Elneny you know th- those guys they all have question marks over them uh, to, to one extent or another so I don't think we're going to know exactly how Arteta wants to set up his midfield until the window closes and hopefully Arsenal have done the, the business they need to do yeah, I think midfield for Arsenal has been a problem area for a, a number of years. But as fans, when we talk about who we're going to sign and players we'd like, we naturally, I suppose, go for the player we don't think we had. So when we didn't have a kind of hard-tackling defensive midfielder who sits in front of the defence, everyone was excited about Lucas Torreira in the same way they're excited about names now, whether it's mm. you know part, uh, party, hour. And suddenly we get him and we realise, OK, good player I like him a lot but maybe limited in a lot of ways when we want to be a also a kind of swashbuckling football team maybe Mm -hmm. he's not the guy so now we're looking for like complete I don't know maybe kind of more deep lying playmaker who has that technical security um, and can also contribute in attacking third which is Patrick Vieira (laughs) in a way and yeah they they aren't everywhere yeah yeah, look, it's it's not an easy task. So, you know, I wish them the very best of luck because, uh, you know, I, I feel like, you know, like I said, we spent a lot of money on defenders. Uh, I just feel like the, the, the missing part of this window so far is midfield and what we need to do. Well, I hope it remains missing, but I'm sure we'll find out by October the 5th or whatever when that deadline day comes about. Um, I do have a quick question for everyone, though. Both of the clubs that we support have had a fair few talented players down the years that effectively haven't lived up to their potential because of injuries. I guess an example at Spurs would be Ledley King. Obviously, the song goes, he's only got one knee, he's better than John Terry. Both things are true. Um, But obviously, the injury, unfortunately, did affect his career. However, I'm keen to know from all of you guys, which Arsenal player you think had the most taken from them by injuries in terms of their career. Andrew, do you want to go first? This is a really good question because we've had so many players who down the years have suffered injuries, serious and not so serious. I mean, the one that really springs to mind for me, um, he came good in the end, but you can't help but wonder what it might have been like had the early part of his career been less afflicted by injuries, and that's Robin Van Persie. Um, You know, the talent was obvious i think we saw in the end you know he developed into a truly world-class player but he spent so much time on the sidelines um and never really got the kind of run in the team the consistency that he uh he probably needed you know in his early 20s which would have seen him peak maybe a little bit earlier or come you know hit that level earlier maybe be able to maintain it for three four five seasons instead of just having that sort of really amazing 18 months or thereabouts before uh, before he went off to Manchester United so that would be that would be the one for me okay Robin Van Persie Keitel who's your choice I was going to say, we've spoken about the, the horse placenta procedure that Robin Van Persie had. So, yeah, there was a lot of eggs in the Van Persie basket, and it's a shame. But for me, we were speaking about Vieira. So I think the only player I can mention is Abu Dhabi in terms of literally having a career robbed of him. I think there's a little bit more bad feeling around it. Not that it should make a difference if a good player ends your career or not, but what was this guy? Was it Dan Smith? 
uh, Sunderland, who that's as much as anyone knows about him. But yeah, Diaby, what a Rolls Royce in theory we were signing. And it looked like it was maybe going to be a real thing for a bit. And then there was even a couple of flashes after he returned from injury. I remember at the beginning of one season, him playing at Anfield. I think we just signed the likes of Pizorla, Giroud, mm. and Podolski. And I thought Diaby was, I was like, wait a minute, is this, maybe he, he can, you know, get back to, to the top of his game. But yeah, really sad. Seems like a nice guy. It sounds like maybe at some point the club tried to give him some ambassadorial little like olive branch in the same way that I've heard they've done potentially for like a Bue, who seemed in dire straits, apparently post-football. But yeah, really sad story about Diaby. I don't know if you guys um, have any thoughts on that or, or Rianni, if you have someone else. Well, I, I do have someone else, but just on Diaby, I, that Liverpool game does come to mind because he was fantastic in it but also I think you know who knows what would have happened if he'd never been injured that Liverpool game to me also comes to mind because at any point in his Arsenal career I didn't see that performance from him very often because he did have runs of games here and there you know the odd season where he'd get you know 20 appearances or 20 starts or whatever and there was quite a lot of inconsistency and the Liverpool game was the best DRB that we saw but even pre-injury, post-injury, I can't think of many that I was convinced he was always capable of producing that. I think the thing with the Abbey is people think about the first injury that he got, the one that was inflicted by Dan Smith, but there was another one by Michael Essien, um, and there was another one by a guy that used to play for Bolton. Was it Paul Robinson? Paul Robinson, you know. Um, so there were like three really bad tackles on him, and then he did his cruciate ligament as well you know so he just had this litany of injuries and I think you're right you know sometimes the what, what Diaby might have been is a little bit um overhyped in a way but you know there was talent there as well so certainly you know the injuries did did have a big impact on him the player that kind of I had in mind for this and someone whose career at Arsenal overlaps quite a lot with Diaby is one of my I think favorite Arsenal players that I've seen anyway um, in Thomas Wozitski. He is just like, I loved everything about him. I loved his style of play. He was, you know, known for being very creative and, you know, te technically very gifted. But I think people often forget that he was actually like really tenacious, had an excellent sliding tackle on him, really got stuck in, never hid at a time where a lot of Arsenal players seemed like they hid quite a lot of the time. He always, when he was fit and available, stepped up. And I think back to the 07-08 season, the season that Arsenal should have won the league and probably the last season that Arsenal really can feel aggrieved about not winning the league. And people think or associate that with the Eduardo injury that happened in February and that, you know, derailing it or whatever. And I understand from a kind of traumatic point of view that may well have played a part. But Rosicki got injured, I think, in a cup game against Newcastle the month before in January. And after that, Arsenal really lost something from the team. And he was out for about 18 months after that. And never really got an extended run without being injured. He'd have a bit like Diaby, sort of 20 games here, 20 games there. But it seemed like there was a major issue every season after that. Mm. And he was just a, like a lovely player, a lovely player to watch. Technically excellent. And I think if we had seen a fit Thomas Wozitski, I have more confidence than kind of projecting that onto Abu Diaby that Arsenal could have kind of got, gone up a level potentially if he had stayed fit for that time. I'm intrigued that none of you said Jack Wilshire, by the way. <laughs> I would have thought potentially there was a I time. Know. There was a time when I might have. 
And I don't think any of us, even you, Joe, can deny the raw talent that he had once upon a time. Even he showed it for England on several occasions. But um, yeah, on Rosicki, what yeah, what a player. Him and Kazorla, two players who were like what you think of as an Arsenal player, but actually were sort of like uncharacteristically good for the teams that they played in and both had a long spell of their Arsenal career taken away from them. I almost think that um, the closest thing we have to that type of player right now is almost something like an Emil Smith-Rowe coming through the academy. I see glimpses of Rosicki-type movement. I see glimpses of almost like Ramsey-type movement from him as well. I'd like to see him get a lot of minutes coming up. Hopefully he's not someone who falls ill of the same injury sort of plague that we've seen at the club. Now it's time for another game that we like to call Pick That One Out. I have recorded commentary for three Arsenal moments over the last 15, 20 years or so. And you're going to have to guess which moments they are and what I'm talking about. I apologise for what is about to happen in your ears. With a throw deep inside the opposition half, it's into the young striker who flicks it up and lays it back to the Spanish magician. Oh, that's a beautiful reverse pass. Back to the striker. And it's a goal. Arsenal in front after one minute. That's the perfect start. Exactly what they needed after their recent results. And it's his first goal for the club. Is this going to be the first of many? Um, something jumped into my mind for some reason, but it's not. it doesn't seem remarkable enough for you to have chosen it. I was going to say, was there a goal that like Cazorla set up for Danny Welbeck or something? Uh, not Danny Welbeck, but Cazola is the assist maker. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, in the first minute. Is that what yeah. that was? It was early on in the game. It was a Champions League game. Uh, Sonogo? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> that was Sonogo's one and only for Arsenal. Against who was it? Borussia Dortmund, was it? Or Yeah, yeah it was Klopp's Dortmund. Um, right. Yeah, Champions League. Anyway, maybe we can get one more in quickly. Well, Arsenal really needs something to fall for them soon here. And it's flicked through. He's in, surely. Oh, it's off the post. Bounces out to the left-hand side. The chip back across the face of goal. And it's there. Arsenal have pulled one back. And they're back in the game. A thumping header. Blackery sent against That's the one. Yeah. Lovely goal. That header. One of the best. One of my favourites. Just... Watching that back today was, was a delight. Any memories of that, Joe? Uh, yes, but not memories I'd like to share. I'd, I'd rather think of the, the most recent fixture of the North London derby. Can't remember that one. Nothing else to about that Sanya header is, yeah, we were playing so dire getting towards the end of the first half. You could just tell he was just like, all right, I've had enough. Mm. Like, have one, put it in the back of the net. It was like, come on, guys, let's get our shit together and actually, like, do something now. And it did. It galvanized us. Try, try the third one, Jan. Okay. Still one all as the corner comes into the box. It's bouncing around. Oh my goodness me, what a strike. What connection. Well, I know as a commentator, I'm supposed to remain impartial, but sometimes you've just got to stand up and applaud. That was not only a piece of inspiration, that was public service. Um, you said that was inside the area. Yeah, yeah. Uh, inside the area. It was in a final, a major final. Giroud? Sorry, Ramsey from Giroud? No. Corner comes in. 
bounces around. It's not a goal. I'll give you that clue. It's not a goal. And it involves a player we've talked about today already. Not a goal. Well, so it was defensive clearance, was it? Or... You could say that. <laughs> oh, wait. Is this... Is this, this Diaby kicking John Terry in the face? It is Diaby kicking oh. John Terry in the face. <laughs> I was at I was at that game. I went to Cardiff to see us lose two one to Chelsea in the. Oh uh, boy, that was the great kick racism out of football post. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's the one. He just knew something that was less apparent to the rest of us at the time. does just about do it for today thanks as always to joe thank you yoni as well and a special thank you to andrew who i actually can't really thank enough for joining us on the podcast so andrew thanks again it's been a pleasure how can our listeners follow you and your work and do you have any upcoming projects that we can look forward to um uh arsenal season 20 2021 that's the project <laughs> that's as much as i can commit to at the moment so uh, just search for Ars blog. You'll find the Twitter and the website, the podcast and everything is under there. So uh, if people are interested, that's where they'll find me. And uh, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Look out for us on Twitter, where we are at Blazers FG pod. Find us on Facebook at Blazers for goalposts. Same for the Instagram account, which has been temporarily disabled over some nonsense. But by the time we release this episode, I reckon it will be back up and looking as good as ever. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye.